Good morning, Children's Health Defense. It's Saturday, January 14th, and again, I am going to bring you the amazing James Corbett. Um, in our show last month, we discussed the WHO, um, and we got over half a million views. And so we are going to talk some more because clearly everybody wants to know what is going on with the WHO. What are the issues of uh, national sovereignty that the WHO may be trying to usurp? And we're going to tell you all about it. So thank you very much, James. Thank you so much for talking to me again. Um, I'm excited for this. There's a lot of stuff to go through. All right. Why don't you start telling us what's happening this week? All right. Well, let's bring people up to date. And I know this is very confusing for people who are jumping into the middle of this. So I guess just as the basic background, people who don't know should know by now that the World Health Organization is cooking up a number of things that could ultimately, as you say, end up usurping national sovereignty under the guise of protecting us from the nasty viruses that are out there. One of which is, I hope what my listeners at least have heard of before, this new draft international treaty or instrument that they are working on that uh, is being referred to as a global pandemic treaty um, that is expected to be passed in some form in 2024. And there is a big intergovernmental negotiating body that is working on that, that, that negotiation right now. And it's still in process. The latest uh, that I have is a news release from last month, which states that the WHO member states have agreed, as we were talking about in our last conversation, to develop a zero draft of a legally binding pandemic accord in early 2023. So basically the zero draft, which is going to be the sort of the basic working thing that they're going to be working from in their negotiations, is uh, apparently going to be ready for negotiations by member states starting February 2023. So next month, they are going to have some sort of zero draft, which is going to be based on the conceptual zero draft of this global pandemic treaty that we were talking about last month. Well, now they're going to be working on a zero draft. And so there will be more information coming out about that. But confusingly, at the same time as they are working on this global pandemic treaty, they are also working on revising the international health regulations of 2005. And again, just the basic background, the IHR, the international health regulations, are a series of commitments that all WHO signatories have committed themselves to um, as part of their WHO membership which does already regulate a lot of things when it comes to th such things as international pandemics. However, the WHO deci decides to define that this week. That's been around, I think, since the 1960s. It was last officially amended in 2005. And that's, as we talked about last time, that's where you get the public health emergency of international concern and some of these other legal devices that have uh, been wielded several times in the past decade, and obviously most notably in the past couple of years. And now they're working on a renegotiation amendments to those international health regulations, which they may or may not combine with this global pandemic treaty they're working on. So as you see, this is just a total mess of stuff that they're working on right now. And the latest with regards to the IHR amendments is that there is, an, uh, again, a negotiating body that is meeting that has met, met five times now, and the report of the fifth meeting of the review committee regarding amendments to the international health regulations was released uh, last month on the uh, 15th, 16th of December. 
and basically they kicked the they punted to as as we're speaking they have just wrapped up apparently this sixth meeting that they were holding um which ran from the 9th to the 13th of january and so apparently on the 15th i.e tomorrow they are going to finalize and submit their final report of this uh, meeting to the who director general now it's behind closed doors. We don't have any window or insight into what they are talking about right now, other than obviously we know sort of the, the IHR amendment proposals that we did talk about last time in our conversation, but we don't have any idea what is actually happening in the room as they are having this negotiation or what this sixth report is actually going to say. So anyway, that's the state of what we know with regards to what's happening behind these closed doors and these confusing negotiations, which is to say, not very much. We don't really know where things stand. We just know the, the direction that they're trending in. And I understand you were taking a look at that conceptual zero draft that they were kicking around last month and noting some of the areas of concern in it. Yes, so um, previously I had gone over the proposed amendments to the IA, to the international health regulations, which again, it's an early draft, but it's something, it's what we had to go by. And that was very concerning because it, you know, the regulations had changed from recommendations to binding. In other words, nations were required to follow them. And um, there was a lot of surveillance. There was, there, it wasn't clear whether the surveillance was just of microorganisms or included people. Well, now that I've read the uh, zero draft, the conceptual zero draft for the consideration of the intergovernmental negotiating body, although this is perhaps an old one, the third meeting, I see that the surveillance clearly involves people and the uh, lack of um, informed consent, if a nation does the surveillance that is required and all the nations are told to expand their, their digital footprint, that all this data is supposed to be digital and they have to keep data and they have to do a lot of monitoring and surveillance, both of humans and of animals and of microorganisms, in order to fulfill the obligations they have in, in these treaties, in the, in, the, in the pandemic treaty, as well as the amendments to the international health regulations. So both documents have some overlapping features and some different features uh, in the two documents. What the version of the treaty that I went over today says is that they're trying to separate the documents so they don't overlap. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Because as, as James said last time, they, the nations or the, may choose to adopt only one of these documents or both or none or a completely different version. But um, another concern is, is the demand that misinformation and disinformation be monitored and subjected, pr presumably subjected to censorship, almost certainly. So um, the language in this treaty draft says that basically the public needs to be given the quote unquote best available scientific evidence at the time, best available. That means this is language that's been used in the United States. It's identical language. That means one narrative 
you're going to get one story, which the government says is the best story, and you're not going to be able to access any reasonable disagreements or controversy or, or minor differences of opinion even. Um, that's a big problem because you can't call that science when there's only one story. Um, so it's the best available scientific evidence, but it's not science. The, an interesting thing in this document is that once you join, you the your nation or your region that joins with this treaty, um, once you sign it, it comes into force in 30 days. So your nation is now obligated to fulfill the parameters of the treaty. But if you want to get out, you have to notify them and it's going to take you two years to get out. So that's, um, that's a big concern for me because I think, um, you know, things could be negotiated in at the last minute. And if the negotiators of a small country are not paying close attention, they may sign up, they're in, in a month. And then all of a sudden there are provisions they don't like and they can't get out of it. They are obligated and it's not clear what the punishments are going to be, but there will be some sort of sanctions and punishments built in. Um, certainly they require that nations be quote unquote responsible and accountable to going along with the provisions of the treaty. Um, so James, what are you thinking about? Uh, you raised some important points there. One of which is uh, what are the consequences for states that um, not only fail to implement all the parameters and policies within 30 days, but then deliberately do not go along with this. And I'm going to get things confused now because again, we're dealing with these two separate, but maybe combined things, the international health regulation amendments and the uh, the treaty negotiations, the pandemic treaty negotiations. But I believe it was with regards to the pandemic treaty negotiations, the INB, the intergovernmental negotiating body. I believe they were talking about when they were first talking about this uh, this whole process, they were talking about uh, financial implications. And basically, um, it, it has been pointed out that the IMF, for example, can be used as an instrument of control over many of these developing nations that rely on IMF loans and funding and support or World Bank. Um, and that can have financial implications as to um, whether or not they're complying with their WHO obligations. So, and as we've talked about before, basically every nation on the planet is a signatory to the WHO. I believe it's 194 um, member states. So basically the entire globe is under this regime and whatever it decides, as you say, is going to be the, the, the law of the land in every land. Um, although supposedly no treaty should be able to override the U.S. Constitution, right, in the United States, but that's already uh, seemingly a lost cause because the U.S. has been a uh, member uh, signatory to the WHO for decades now. An another important point um, that you raise there, and getting out um, two years, which brings to mind, for example, what we saw with Trump, right, with oh, don't worry, guys, we're going to get out of the WHO and we're going to take all that money we were giving to the WHO and give it to Bill Gates's Gavi which is essentially the, the same, same thing, thing or maybe even worse. So um, that that accomplished nothing and then was immediately reversed by Biden anyway. So, of course, the two year you can get out if uh, after two years is, uh, I think, obviously put in there so that uh, those types of rash decisions by people who aren't who aren't going along with the, uh, the 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 agenda or who want to put out a show that they're not going along with the agenda, that will ultimately not take place, um, especially 
in a political environment like in the United States. So uh, it's a booby trap. And unfortunately, almost every nation on the planet is already in that booby trap, whether they know it or not. Um, you know, we don't, we're having a hard time with the names of this treaty and the, they keep mm. changing. So yeah. I would suggest, why don't we just call it the Hotel California Treaty? <laughs> Excellent, uh, excellent uh, example. Yeah, that's pretty much what this is, isn't it? So both both the amendments and the uh, treaty document talk about finances. They both want new forms of finance. I think one um, new financial instrument has already been created. The, the treaty document is not particularly specific, although they do talk about the World Bank being involved and um, some world organization that that protects prop, uh, intellectual property being involved as well. They want to incentivize research and development, uh, they, and they want a lot of public financing, but they also want to finance things, which means borrow from the future, I guess, or sell some sort of, you know, God knows what, maybe, uh, you know, carbon credits or something to make money to pay for this. So the, the WHO currently costs the world supposedly a little under $4 billion a year. And much of that is um, given as earmarked gifts from Bill and Melinda Gates, from countries, from other entities, from corporations, et cetera. Um, what they want is about $60 billion a year to run this new the new improved WHO after the pandemic treaty and the amendments are, you know, or some combination get, go into place. And they also want somewhere between 50 and $200 billion to begin to build out the infrastructure to create this. The whole thing is based on, uh, as I've said before, the notion that one can prepare for and prevent pandemics. And that is a false notion particularly when the pandemics are caused by our governments paying for the research. So One Health is, is a concept we talked about last time, which claims that you can't look at human health in um, isolation, but you must instead consider at the same time the health of livestock. Okay, there are a few diseases you can catch from, you know, drinking raw milk or contaminated meat, but in general, there's very few of those diseases in the developed world. One Health also says you can't just consider livestock, you've got to consider wild animals, and while you're at it, you need to consider plants. But that's not enough either. You have to, human health is also dependent on ecosystems, so you need to concern yourself with ecosystems. And this pandemic treaty mentions uh, that the, the treaty is also concerned about fragile ecosystems, as well as the health of humans and animals and plants. Um, this is a big concern because One Health then wraps up the entire world in, in its purview. So it now, so under the guise of doing a One Health analysis of a situation or of a human pandemic, one could potentially, the WHO could say, okay, this particular area is causing a loss of biodiversity because of too much farming or too much something else. And therefore you have to stop farming or you have to stop mining or road building 
These are all things that have been mentioned in documents that could be upsetting ecosystems and therefore could be ordered to end. And people could potentially be moved from one place to another because they because of a need to protect their the ecosystem or to separate them from the bats in the bat caves or or some other animals that are presumed to potentially cause an epidemic. It's important for people who are trying to take over the world to shove one health down our throats because it, one of its purposes is to blame humans and the human animal interface for pandemics and to take any thought of blame away from laboratories that our governments may be sponsoring and and to completely get rid of the idea that there could be you know biological warfare or or maybe these labs are just trying to make a better vaccine as claimed but in any event they're designing more new microorganisms which in many cases uh, can be lethal and certainly more transmissible than those that we already have so one health is very big in both the treaty and in the amendments. And um, everybody, as soon as you hear the term One Health, prick up your ears and listen to what they're saying, because this is a cockamamie concept. It, it has almost no real meaning. One meaning it has is that, yes, antibiotic resistance is a problem that relates to both humans and animals, because currently two thirds of the antibiotics used in the United States are used in animal feed to enhance animal growth. They are not used to prevent any infections in the animals, but the animals get fatter quicker if you feed them antibiotics. And this is the primary cause of antibiotic resistance in humans because people are eating meat that is you know, filled with antibiotics. So we could get rid of a lot of antibiotic resistance, which by the way, is not a really a huge problem, hasn't caused any pandemics. For almost all infections, there's some antibiotic that, that can kill it. So it's not a huge problem, but it, it is occasionally a problem. What the people who are, are trying to take over the world don't want to happen is they don't want to get rid of antibiotic resistance. If you stopped feeding livestock and, and chickens antibiotics, it would probably go away. Then they would have no justification for One Health. So you're going to hear a lot about antibiotic resistance. You're going to hear a lot about One Health and just understand that it is a, it is a concept bereft of any real meaning. Um, the, the international organizations are desperately trying to define it and find out, figure out ways they can use it. They want to put a whole lot of money. Many They have already put billions of dollars into building out a, a One Health infrastructure where veterinarians and some other public health professionals are, are pushing this idea that we have to think of everything in terms of this large One Health perspective. And if we let them, they will continue that until all we hear about is one health. Uh, you raise an, a bunch of important points, and I think it's important to stress for the audience out there who, we did talk about One Health last time, so hopefully they're at least vaguely familiar with the concept, but for most people, they are just sort of hearing it for the first time. I don't think most people understand how deeply embedded in the inf institutional infrastructure this concept already is. For example, for people in the U.S., the U.S. CDC, the Center for Disease Control, 
creation and propaganda, um, has already uh, created their own One Health uh, division, which reading from their own page where they say, what is One Health? One Health is an approach that recognizes that the health of people is closely connected to the health of animals and our shared environment, which, as, as we pointed out last time, all right, it sounds mushy and fluffy and it's hard to define, but that vague concept, sure, yeah, well, we are connected to our, our natural surroundings, right? So it makes sense in some way. But then they go on to talk about what it means in detail. For example, human populations are growing and expanding into new geographic areas. As a result, more people live in close contact with wild and domestic animals, both livestock and pets. Animals play an important role in our lives, but close contact with animals and their environment provides more opportunity for diseases to pass between animals and people. The second point they make is the earth has experienced changes in climate and land, land use, such as deforestation and intensive farming practices. Disruptions in environmental conditions and habitats can provide new opportunities for disease to pass to animals. And then the third point they make is the movement of people, animals, and animal products has increased from international travel and trade. As a result, these diseases can spread quickly across borders and around the globe. And then they go on to talk about the types of zoonotic diseases that this could give rise to, like rabies, salmonella, West Nile, Q fever, anthrax, brucellosis, Lyme disease, ringworm, Ebola, etc. So... And then they go on, of course, as you were pointing out, to talk about antimicrobial resistant germs, vector-borne diseases, diseases in food, food animals, human-animal bond, etc. So as you say, it's widely, vaguely, mushily defined so that it's... But you notice what the common underlying factor in all of these problems is. The, the, the underlying factor in all of this, essentially, is the growth of the human population and people, too many people moving to all over the place and growing and expanding into new areas and requiring more food, etc. It's going to put us into more contact with animals and all of this, um, which to my mind is not surprising in the least. This is just the latest iteration of a very, very old idea, the old idea of eugenics. We need to control the population. How do we control the population? Why should we allow these experts to control the human population? Well, because of the zoonotic diseases that it's going to give rise to, whatever the excuses this week. And I will note that over the Christmas New Year break, uh, 60 Minutes featured a report on the growing human population that featured serially constantly career-long wrong predictor of things that don't happen, Paul Ehrlich, to come along and give once again his spiel, which has been demonstrably debunked, even in the peer-reviewed literature, that we are, uh, there's too many humans and we, we need five Earths to, to, uh, to uh, sustain our carrying capacity as it is now and blah, blah, blah etc cetera, etc cetera. um uh, more debunked lies so i think this is just an iteration a further iteration of a very old idea that they're just trying to shoehorn into their area of expertise if you're the cdc of course one health will give you the the nice uh, uh way in the door to be able to start again controlling human population in all aspects of that word so you can go to the cdc page and read about their one health office and what we do like coordinate partners to address One Health challenges, prepare for and respond to outbreaks and public health emergencies, such as Ebola, Zika, and COVID-19, build One Health capacity and strengthen global health security through training and tool development, strengthen surveillance and information sharing across public health, agriculture, wildlife, and other sectors, educate people on ways to prevent disease, blah, blah, blah. 
et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not, of course, it's not just the CDC. This is everywhere and it's reaching into every factor of every institutional infrastructure that exists right now, including, of course, the World Health Organization, which you may or may not know, released its One Health Joint Plan of Action last October, um, which apparently is in coordination with a the, the quadripartite partners, which just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> so the WHO's One Health Initiative is being coordinated with the quadripartite members, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the U U UN, the UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, and the World or uh, Organization for Animal Health, WOAH. So, and WHO makes up the fourth part of that quadripartite um, relationship. And in uh, last October, they released their joint plan of action. Um, whatever that means. Uh, again, they, there is a page up on their site that is talking about the five-year plan, which focuses on supporting and expanding capacities uh, in six areas, health systems, emerging and re-emerging zoonotic epidemics, uh, endemic zoonotic neglected tropical and vector-borne diseases, food safety risks, antimicrobial resistance, and the environment. <laughs> the environment. So basically, as you say, anything and everything that they want. This is their excuse at, uh, in the health department of the grand global governmental infrastructure that's developing um, to try to fit their um, their snoot into that trough and to draw from it liber liberally. And if only if only it was just some sort of money grab, if only it was just a swindle, that would be bad enough. But of course, it's not about that. As I say, it's about controlling human population. And this will feed into the general sort of theme of too many people going all over the place, niggledy-piggledy and too much freedom. They're, uh, they, uh, we have to contain this. We have to control it. We have to start, oh, I don't know, doling out carbon credits or otherwise limiting human activity in various ways. Another important part of this that you picked up on there is, of course, about food animals. And, of course, the, the antimicrobial resistance coming from antibiotics given um, in the factory farming system. And this, to me, is a perfect example of a problem-reaction-solution scenario, whereby if you want if you have a certain end goal in mind, and if you are in a position to be able to steward over resources and uh, and people and technologies so that you can, say, bring about a problem in order to say, hey, look at that problem. We need to do something about it. And then, hey, look, we have the solution all ready to go. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here with regards to this, um, talking about the factory food farming system, which Obviously, there are problems with the way that our food is being produced uh, these days. And um, I, I think everyone understands the conditions under which animals are raised uh, for slaughter in the factory farming system is itself not is not environmentally sustainable, is not nice, is not good. And it, it requires the feeding of all this um, uh, antibiotic uh, gunk to these animals so that they don't basically die in squalor in the cages and pens that they're cooped up in, in order that they can then be slaughtered and eaten. And of course, as you say, contributes to antimicrobial resistance. So uh, we all know this is a problem. What's the solution? Certainly not going to, you know, free range farming or, or something more in line with actual nature. No, 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 no. Now, the next stage of the solution is cut out the animals altogether. We'll just have lab grown meat, right? And 
you may roll your eyes. Oh, do you really think they're going there? They really are going there. Um, there are a number of resources out there that I would direct people towards, one of which is called Please Stop the Ride at pleasestoptheride.com. Has done some great uh, video explorations of this, and the transcripts are available on that site. For example, talking about the biotech food takeover that is happening right now. And people don't understand how advanced this already is. But if you want it from the horse's mouth, you could go to uh, the uh, Canadian Government of Canada's Policy Horizons Canada, which released a biodigital Today and Tomorrow report in May of 2022, talking about the future of food and talking, of course, specifically about that lab-grown meat. You can grow anything, anywhere, anytime, which will make nations self-sufficient with their food supply. And uh, diet will merge into preventative health care because we will be able to start working um, with people at the DNA level to uh, structure diets specifically for them that will produce wonderful, healthy people from this lab-grown gunk that we're going to start shoveling inside of people instead of, you know, traditional food. And uh, again, I think people probably don't know how advanced this this stage of the agenda already is. Yeah, it's uh, it's really scary. And we're going to go into the, the food issues a bit more. In case you're still not sure that One Health is a terrible, terrible concept, who are the people who have um, you know pushed it? Who have the boosters been? So Tony Fauci has been one of the boosters. Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance has been a big booster of One Health. So the WHO picked 26 experts to be on this expert group to try to sort of lay out what One Health was going to be because really it's nothing. So they have to struggle to come up with some concepts for it. But among the people who are in that group of X26 experts are George Gao, who is the head of China's CDC and was at Event 201 exercise and has been at the uh, monkeypox tabletop exercise. So a, a clear globalist health person and another person on this 26th uh, ex list of experts is Marion Koopmans, who is the head of a department at Erasmus University in the Netherlands. Um, she was also she was a buddy of Peter Daszak. She was on the WHO investigative committee that went to Wuhan and said that uh, uh, COVID was probably due to frozen food. And she too is a is a globalist flunky who has been working on probably biological weapons, gain of function uh, organisms. And uh, in fact, in her department, her close colleague was a person who developed the uh, transmissibility of an, uh, an avian flu be so that it became airborne when it was not previously airborne and could infect uh, ferrets. Um, so I think he also caused it to jump species. In any event, that was done in her department. Um, these are, are not trustworthy people, but they are being put in place to manage the narrative for us. I wanted to mention a couple of other things that I paid close attention to in this uh, draft of the treaty. James talked about this issue before, but I want to mention it again, and that is the right to health. The enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health 
defined as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of age, race, religion, political belief, economic, or social condition. Okay, unquote. Now that is pretty crazy. Does that mean if I have bad teeth, you know, you're going to give me new teeth, you're going to put in implants or give me, so, you know, you're going to give me dental care. If I was born without an arm or if I have an amputation, you're going to provide me a new appendage. Is this claim in this document providing a bridge to transhumanism? Mm. What is this highest attainable standard of health? You know, th this is a myth, complete physical, mental, and social well-being. What does it, does it mean people are going to be drugged up all the time? So that's one thing. The, the next issue right after that on page 12 is uh, sovereignty, which says apparently they, they heard us talk about the sovereignty question and wanted to make this treaty appear to show that nations will be able to retain their own sovereignty when there's a pandemic or public health emergency. So they say states have, in accordance with the Charter of the UN and the principles of international law, the sovereign right to determine and manage their approach to public health. But then you skip down and a couple of lines later, they say, provided that activities within their jurisdiction or control do not cause damage to other states and their peoples. Okay, we're talking about pandemics. The definition of a pandemic is it affects more than one country. It's multiple, it's an infection in multiple countries. So they're saying, okay, nations have sovereignty over public health until you have a pandemic and it affects another country. Then you no longer have sovereignty over your public health. So I uh, thought that was kind of sneaky, contradictory, yeah. and should make one concerned about the rest of the document. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good point. And of course, I think that language is aimed, uh, uh, the way I see that is things like the uh, the global vaccine passport system that we know they are already working on and are going to unleash, presumably as part of one of these treaty or amendment negotiations. Um, because again, yeah, you can do whatever you want within your own borders, but no, it, you have to be on part of, on board with the global vaccine passport system because this is about going between countries, right? So that's one giant foot in the door for that agenda. And you raise another important point again about the definition of health. What is this thing that we're trying to attain, which we talked about again in our last conversation and which is worth bringing up probably in every conversation because this is, this is exactly what this is all about. When they define health so broadly, as you say, what does that mean? The highest possible attainment of physical and mental well-being. It means whatever they want it to mean. And I the way my mind works, I start to think about, oh, well, I mean, that's a gigantic way, uh, the big wedge for them to start inserting themselves into every aspect of your life for whatever reason they choose. So, for example, I mean, if you're if you're overweight, then clearly you have not attained your highest physical well-being. So the state may be able to come in and dictate for you. Well, OK, you're, you're not allowed any more of that pizza. You can't have that cheeseburger. And 
hey, some people would even say, well, good. I think there should we should be uh, looking over people's diets. But then it's every other aspect of whatever they say. Mental well-being. Who gets to choose? Who gets to determine what by what rubric, rubric, rubric and standard is that measured? So uh, do they get to say, look, you're you're resisting this World Health Organization One Health Agenda a little too strenuously. I think you may have some mental problems and you may scoff. But of course, we have seen this used psycho psychiatry and psychology have been weaponized in the past, obviously, in totalitarian states like the Soviet Union, where dissenters were literally pathologized. If you're against the state, you must be crazy. Um, and of course, it happens to this day, even in developed nations. Um, and I don't have the details off the top of my head, but I believe there was a doctor in the Netherlands, uh, question mark, that was uh, recently um, hospitalized or was at least being referred for a psychiatric um, uh, evaluation because he was not going along with the uh, the vaccine agenda, something along those lines. So, so anyway. Yeah. Um, so there was a doctor in Canada who was hospitalized in a psych ward and given antipsychotics for almost a month until a friend of his got him out. And another doctor, uh, cardiologist, internist I know in Switzerland, at the beginning of the pandemic, he mm. said, this is baloney. And they hospitalized him. He was in for almost mm. a week. And then I myself was ordered by my medical board to have a neuropsych evaluation um, because they, they were on a fishing expedition. They needed to find something to justify the fact that they were taking away my medical license, suspending my medical license, which has now been suspended for a year um, as of today. Um, and they didn't have anything. So they said, okay, pay $2,100, go, go see this guy, our guy, and uh, we'll get a report, you know, and then presumably they could revoke my license forever. Yeah. As so, I say, yeah. this is the weaponization of that concept. Again, the highest attainment of mental well-being. Oh, that sounds nice. But who gets to decide what that means? And it can be weaponized and used against people. Anyway, that's the way that I tend to think of this. But you raise an incredibly important other side of this, which is, well, you know, if you're if you're born without a limb, well, then we can give you a new limb. Or what about when we start to get into the brain upgrades, right? The, the neurochips of various sorts, maybe not Neuralink, maybe Neuralink, but something along those lines. Well, these people are upgraded and they're they're even better. They can think faster. They can uh, they can access the internet uh, in their brain. Yay. So that maybe that's the highest level of physical attainment, right? And so now we have to start upgrading and chipping everybody, right? We all have to be Part of this. So you're exactly right. It is also a gigantic open door for the possibility of inserting a transhuman agenda into this, that if humanity will have to be upgraded as the technology makes it possible. You won't get a say in it because the government will be able to control uh, through this one health policy, the, the physical attainment and the highest possible uh, condition of all the people. And most people might just respond, yay, good. They're, they're looking after our health because all of this has been put in that box. Right. Um, another thing that was in this document is harmonization. Harmonization is a word that's been bandered around for a long time. We need to get all the nations to agree on standards. But in this case, the harmonization is regulatory requirements for drugs and vaccines. Right. So we are going to loosen the regulatory requirements and then impose those loosened requirements on everyone. In other words, 
you know, we don't need another COVID for the, for the FDA to wave its magic wand and say, you know, eight mice um, are still alive, so you can all get the bivalent booster. Um, they're going to do that everywhere in the world. Um, they also require uh, the nations who are parties to speed up the approvals and authorizations of medical products for pandemics. Um, and of course, guess what? Limiting liability, right? Everybody has to limit liability for these, you know, worthless medical products that were not properly tested and were speeded through the regulatory process. Um, there's also going to be harmonization for the sharing of data and specimens, which again um, means nobody's going to get to consent. Um, if you're, you know, Helen Lack, if your cells are going to wind up being used for commercial purposes, you, you are going to get nothing for that. Um, Interestingly, mental health care is specifically mentioned a couple of times in this document, so, which made me think they definitely do want the ability to, uh, you know, provide you with drugs so that you can maintain that optimal uh, physical and mental state that they are referring to. They also, they want, sort of want universal health care, but they say they want universal health coverage. That's, that's something different. That means insurance. In other words, this is this is a sop to the insurance industry. You know, everybody needs to have coverage. Um, they also want modeling. Definitely, we need modeling. You know, because once you you're doing modeling, you can come up with anything um, as your forecast, your prediction for how bad is this pandemic going to be, or is there even going to be a pandemic? Well, we've modeled it, you know, at this rate of, of growth of new organisms under these conditions, we can expect a pandemic every two years, you know, that sort of thing. Um, they, another weird thing is they want all these countries to have the ability to perform genomic sequencing. They want, this isn't just necessarily PCR tests. I think they want to, to obtain the genome of, of everybody for purposes we can only speculate. Um, what, this could, of course, be used to say what dose of drug you should have. You know that you're a faster metabolizer of certain classes of drugs than somebody else. Uh, but you might have a... Um, a resistance to a particular infection, that gene might be useful, might be worth money, and they want to have it. Uh, I don't think they want you to be paid off for providing it. But there could be more, to, a lot more to it than that. I mean, we can only imagine what the... Uh, right now, there it has been uh, illegal to um, sort of require the genetic... Um, uh, 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 your your D DNA makeup um, because of insurance issues. So luckily, about three decades ago, that, that was an issue. That insurance companies, if they knew you had a genetic predisposition, they might not insure you, or they might charge a lot more money. So um, uh, there were bills passed. I don't know if they're, I don't know how many states passed them, but um, bills passed so that um, insurance companies could not um, do that to people. 
with their uh, genetic data. And um, anyway, that's, but that doesn't mean that once this treaty is, goes forward, that, that those laws will have any meaning. Another thing they, they demand, which was a little crazy, is they want tabletop exercises, just like Event 21 and, and the monkeypox pandemic, you know, exercise a year before monkeypox showed up. They demand that nations do tabletop exercises and regular pandemic drills. The only thing I could come up with is that they want the population to be continuously on alert and frightened about the possibility of pandemics so the populations can be managed using that fear, you know, and it becomes, you know, one of the major things everybody talks about, just like we've gone through for the last three years, where COVID is the, you know, the topic of the day every day. Um, finally, the, the document talks about whole of government, whole of society. Once these phrases have become buzzwords in the United States anyway, means every part of society needs to get on board. The civilians, the NGOs, the government, the army, the corporations, everybody has to work together to push a particular program. And in this case, it's the pandemic planning. Um, and I guess one more, they want messaging and they specifically want it to encourage the public's trust in both science, trust the science and in government. So um, so that is what I think uh, at this point the pandemic treaty is about. And uh, I, although the WHO says these documents are gonna be finally negotiated in 2024, to me, the fact that they're having so many meetings so close together um, suggests that they wanna get it done this year. So I think we may only have potentially until May before one or both of these documents um, gets voted on. I, I suspect you're right. Um, again, they're, they're dangling out 2024 for the masses. Hey, it's all, it's going to happen in 2024, which as I think you're right in saying, it probably means it's going to happen this year and they're going to present it as a fait accompli and it's just going to be, let's sign the paper and, you know, have the festivities in 2024. But the real meat is happening right now and i mean right now so i think people need their eyes on the ball on this and we should probably talk about what people can or should be doing about this but before we do so i just want to comment on what you were talking about there uh i am i've been around uh in this long enough to know what the word harmonization means whether it comes in codex alimentarius or any other of these sort of international uh or the, the proposed North American uh, union that was uh, being floated around in the early 2000s and things like this. Harmonization always means the race to the bottom when it comes to regulations. And of course, it's just uh, grist for the mill for the pharmaceutical industrial complex that obviously wants, wants the CDC system of green, green, green lighting and rubber stamping, anything that they put out at any time, they want that to be universalized for obvious reasons. Um, when it comes to modeling, uh, uh, again, such an important point of what happened in the past few years. People might not remember. It was the Imperial College of London report estimating 500,000 deaths in the UK and maybe a couple million in the US um, that really started generating the at least the political hype surrounding the lockdowns and all of that in the first place, along with the uh, Gates founded and funded 
Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in his home state of Washington, which had a similar report at that time. That was what people were using. So modeling is actually probably the key towards generating uh, a pandemic in the future. Um, the genome tailoring things for your first getting your genome and then tailoring things for you. Of course, it, again, it's going to be presented as a wonderful thing. And pointing back to that bio digital today and tomorrow, um, where they're talking about individual diets based on DNA profiling advances in nutrigenomics, the study of relationship between genes, nutrition and health could allow people to make health diet and lifestyle choices based on their genetic profile. Talking about personalized uh, dietary advice based on DNA, um, using th 3D print technology to um, uh, to print biome-based bespoke sushi, um, vitamin pills be <laughs> being tailored to your genome, etc. Again, a lot of hype surrounding this idea. And do you really think that they're trying to get your genetic data so that they can precisely fine-tune your health, right? And uh, let's just imagine a scenario, and I know you have to really stretch your imagination for this, but let's just imagine a scenario in which perhaps there was some sort of government entity or someone in one of these uh, institutions that didn't have your best interests in mind, wanted to make you sick. They would be able to do that quite easily if they had your genetic data down to that level, wouldn't they? Anyway, something to think about. On the note of drills, Again, uh, I think probably an underappreciated point. Um, event 201 happened, and it happened for a reason. And there are a number of reasons why drills like that might happen. Um, for people who want a sort of bigger in-depth exploration of that in a different context, I did a, a documentary several years ago called 9-11 War Games. It's at CorbettReport.com slash 911 War Games. And people can go there to um, find out about the dozens, literally dozens of drills, exercises, war games, and simulations that were taking place around attacks on the World Trade Center, attacks on the Pentagon, build, uh, planes crashing into buildings, Osama bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera, in the lead up to 9-11, let alone all of the war games and exercises and drills that were taking place on the day of 9-11, including drills of planes flying into buildings on 9-11-2001. Um, it's it's an incredible coincidence, isn't it? Or perhaps it speaks to something more. But drills can be used in a number of ways, one of which is uh, to actually shepherd in an event that you want to take place undercover so that when and if it gets exposed beforehand, it was just a drill. And uh, that has happened several times throughout history. But the other aspect of that that you touched on is absolutely to prepare uh, the the public consciousness generally, but also perhaps more importantly, people in positions of power in the CDC and these types of institutions to expect that this is something that we're now, we've entered a new era and it's going to be happening a lot more frequently. And if people aren't prepped for that, they might start to question what is going on. But if you're having these annual or biannual drills or whatever it ends up being, you are you are in that mindset and you are prepared for it and you are thinking about it and you are working towards that. And then when it starts happening, you might be less interested in talking about it. Anyway, um, that's just some of the things that come out from all of that. But as I say, that leads back to more the more pressing question which arises from this, which is what can people be doing about this? And I understand you're looking at things that people, at least in the U.S., can be doing with regards to their position in the World Health Organization. Is that right? Well, I came up with a list of 15 things that Americans could do, and, and one or two of them were things that everybody could do. For example, 
adding teeth to a biological weapons convention. One already exists. It takes too long to discuss all those things, so I'm not prepared yeah. to do it right now. I'll, yeah, I'll talk about it more yeah. in the Substack. Um, as far as this business of the WHO creating a situation where they can take over sovereignty from all the nations that are parties to the treaty or to these amendments uh, of the IHR, on the basis that there's a pandemic and therefore WHO now gets to make all the public health decisions and all the One Health decisions and now is in charge of ecosystems and, and animals and plants and everything and food too, because that is another issue. Everybody wants a completely new food system, which is supposed to help reduce the, the global warming. And, and so that's another issue. And maybe James and I will talk about that next time. But what can we do now? The big, the most important thing is to talk to everybody you know. If you have a chance, look over these documents. The, the um, draft of the treaty is about 25 pages. The draft of the international health regulations that I have written about on my Substack was 46 pages. Um, or you can uh, look at James Roguski's um, Substack. He has done videos about the documents. He has written synopses of them. And I have also about the IHR amendments. And share the information. Explain to people that the way I see this, and I might be wrong, is that there is a group trying to take over control of as much of the world as they can. And there are a lot of different ways this can be done, but many of them you know, require blood, uh, require war, require famine, et cetera. And those things may still happen. However, the bloodless, easy way to gain control over almost everything in the world, if not everything, is to simply declare a pandemic when you have a treaty or international health regulation amendments that allow the WHO to give all the orders while that pandemic has been declared. And as we know, we are now living with three years of a declared pandemic that has become minor, either a mild flu or a cold uh, for almost everyone. And yet we are still living under the pandemic declaration because it gives dictatorial powers to governors and, and to federal officials and they want those powers and it takes away liability and allows them to give us drugs and vaccines that have not been tested with no liability. And so um, what was done at the national level in nations would simply be shifted over and be done at the international level. You know, it's basically most countries have already been run like dictatorships but they do have underlying law that can get them out of it. They do have states that could you know, vote differently. For instance, Pennsylvania voted not to allow their governor to maintain a state of emergency. After three weeks, the legislature had to agree or they had to stop the state of emergency in Pennsylvania. The other states haven't done that. Um, but that's one thing that can be done. There are many things that could be done at the state level. It turns out that the, st the state, according to the U.S. Constitution, the states are in control of medical care because medical care was deliberately not discussed in the Constitution. 
they had they had doctors and they had medical care but the constitution says if if we don't talk about it here and say who's in charge it goes to the states or to the individual people to be to have authority and sovereignty over that issue and so medical care is one that according to the constitution should be left to the states and the people and therefore one can make the argument that the the federal if the US federal government transfers sovereignty over healthcare to the WHO it didn't actually have authority to do that because the states that that authority for healthcare rested within the states and so explaining this to your state legislators your governor your mayors explaining what's going on that we could be walking into you know another disaster just like the one we faced this this illegal you know whole new set of laws emergency laws in place and losing many of our civil rights because of the declaration of an emergency we could be walking into that internationally and never get them back but potentially the states could stop it the the congress could stop it and in other nations you know people need to understand what's going on demonstrate you know write letters to the editor which still are being published even though you know the mass media are not publishing too many honest articles but they are often publishing letters to the editor we need to communicate with each other using the means that are still available to us and um, and get ready for this because as as James said last time this is the big one they're going for broke, you know, and it's our job for our children and grandchildren's sake to stop this. Any uh, final thoughts? Uh, you said it. Uh, you said a lot there. And uh, as I as as you say, as I say, this really is the baseline of any uh, freedom, bodily autonomy, and your ability to decide for yourself what medical interventions you do or do not take, and what way you. Uh, treat your body. That is the baseline of human freedom. So it, it could not be more important. Uh, I think we've gone over a lot today. I have a lot to say with regards to s potential solutions or things that we can and should be doing on this. Please but do. I think we'll, well, I would just say in response to what you said, I think it is important you point out that, um, yeah, one way to, to play this would be to play different levels of the institutional authorities against each other. And I think there is a good case to be made, for example, as you say, states should have sovereignty over the federal government with regards to such things as healthcare. Um, even in Canada, the, it's a, healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction, not a, fe a federal jurisdiction. So there is there there is an argument to be made that this the, the membership of WHO should not be able to override any individual state or pro provincial um, decisions, et cetera, et cetera. There's so there are definitely things to to talk about with re regards to that. The other aspect of that, which again I think we can get into next month in greater detail is that if anything good has come out of the last few years of craziness it is that it has given us at least the insight into what this is and how this will and could play out in the future and what we need to have in place in order to ensure that this does not happen in the future um i guess the the key word would be self-sufficiency but i don't mean self as in you as a lone individual i mean 
finding a community of like-minded people who do not go along with this agenda and finding ways that you can provide for each other, regardless of what the authorities are telling you with regards to restrictions and lockdowns and mandates, etc. We have to create our own parallel society that will be able to withstand the craziness that is coming. And there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, as I say, we can talk about that in more detail next time. But um, there's going to be a lot of references to what we've talked about today. I know when I post this up on my site, all of the show notes will have all of the links to all of these things. And as I say, I hope people will start reading some of these documents for themselves and at the very least getting this information out there to others. That is the first step towards any uh, having any hope of combating this agenda is to understand it. It's such a joy to talk to you all the time. And um, I am very grateful that you exist, James. So thank you for doing this show. And I will see you next month. Thank you. Thank you.